mean, you've been putting in work for so long. Putting in a lot of work. What is going on, guys? Welcome to Putting in Work, episode 70 of the interview podcast on the 8-Bit Collective, powered by Audio Technica. I'm your host, John Opeck, and this week we have Lee Ellis from The Starters on the show, someone I've been keen to have on here for a very long time. But we'll get to that in just a second after the iTunes review of the week, which goes to Roland Moog from New Zealand. He says, fantastic podcast. Jono is a great host and he has interviewed a great diverse group of people to discuss how they've got to where they are. Highly recommended. Thank you, Roland. It is NBA finals time. So I thought, hey, here's an NBA themed interview. Now, Lee Ellis, for people who don't know, is one of the co-hosts of The Starters, a TV show and podcast on NBA TV over in Atlanta at TNT Studios, which means he's working alongside the likes of Charles Barkley, Shaq, Isaiah Thomas, a lot of NBA legends who have gone into media. But Lee is not an NBA legend. He's a could have been. He's an Aussie. He's a guy that grew up in Sunbury in Melbourne suburbs. Took a very unique path to get to where he is. He came to media production quite late and definitely worked his way up, eventually getting onto the Basketball Jones, which moved over to NBA TV as the starters. I've done an interview with uh, Matt Austin, who's the producer on the starters. I think that was episode 52, if you want to go back and check that out. That in itself is a really interesting story, kind of an amazing story. But Lee's kind of sub story within that is even more crazy, if you ask me. This is a guy who grew up with no Australian role models in terms of media personalities making it in American sports. That definitely wasn't a thing. And I can't even think of someone that's done it up until him. The thing I love the most about the starters is how entertaining these guys are. They're great friends and you can see that in the content. And Lee really brings a quirky Aussie sense of humor to that as well. And pretty weird, pretty cool when you think back to his childhood growing up in a country that NBA wasn't widely publicized even used to pay his friend whose father worked at an airline to collect old newspapers from American flights so he could read the box scores of NBA games and the NBA coverage because it took so long for it to filter to here without the internet and all the things we have now to make it so easy. So I did record this a couple weeks ago. Originally, there were some problems with audio, so we had to do it again, but I think we definitely nailed it the second time around. Here is Lee Ellis from The Starters. Enjoy the show. Thank you for joining me, Lee. It's uh, great to have you back on the show. <laughs> yeah, it's been a while, yeah. <laughs> You're one of very few guests who've been uh, on the show twice, I can say. Ah, Feel oh. special? Not the intended way, but uh, <laughs> maybe we'll get there. No, that's right. So I thought this time we would take it from the start and uh, kind of talk through the progression from Kid in Sunbury to NBA TV, because that's quite a leap for... Uh, yeah. <laughs> For, for anyone really, but uh, especially for, for an Aussie. So you're growing up in like the 80s. Basketball isn't a big deal over here quite yet because it's not on TV. Can you talk me through what was the cultural position of basketball and specifically NBA? Yeah, well, basketball itself as a sport was quite uh, big, I felt, growing up in, in Sunbury, certainly, and in Victoria, that um, a lot of our friends and family played it. I have two older brothers and my dad, and they all played it. So for me, it was always in our family, and, uh, and I enjoyed it, but uh, really, it, obviously, the NBA was so big, but it wasn't in Australia, so there wasn't really any coverage of it. But I used to get little snippets of news on, on the uh, sports section of the news uh, at night on Channel 10 or wherever, and it sort of whetted your appetite a little bit there because I would see a highlight of Larry Bird or Dr. J or Magic Johnson, whoever it was, and you think, oh, man, this is like obviously the biggest league in the world. So I was always interested in it, but I could never really get a full uh, coverage of it to, to sort of really get into it. And then slowly, there was a little bit more coverage came on the ABC in 1988, I believe it was the first season, they started showing one game a week hmm. uh, on a Friday night at midnight that was uh, probably, a, you know, a couple of weeks after it had aired in America or after it was played. And then the local news agency, I noticed they had a few magazines that I started to collect, Basketball Digest and Hoop Magazine and a few others. So I started to gain a little bit more knowledge around the league and the game. And the more I got, the more I wanted and and the more I understood about uh, the teams and the players. And, And one of these magazines as well had all the play, all the league's teams' addresses, postal addresses, and obviously there was no internet or cable TV back then. So I had all of a sudden one day every single team's mailing address, and so I thought, well, I'm just going to start writing some letters. And I started with the Lakers and probably the Boston Celtics, you know, the bigger known teams at the time. And I just started firing off letters, thinking, I wonder if they'll 
I wonder if they'll get them. I wonder if they'll respond. And so, are you writing not- like Dear Lakers, or is it like Dear Magic Johnson? Like, what's the? Um, I, I mean, it was probably more the Lakers. I don't think it was specific to yeah. Magic. I mean, the, the, look, the Lakers because at the time they, that was the peak of the Showtime Lakers, eighty seven, eighty eight. They win the back to back championships, and that was the first team that I really supported. I guess because. It was pretty hard not to cheer for them. And mm. so for me, uh, writing to these teams, I remember I wrote to the Lakers probably a dozen times and, and they wrote back and they sent back like a, a black and white team photo and some other little stickers and cards and things like that. And so by them writing back, it was almost like that scene in Shawshank Redemption, you know, when uh, when uh, Tim Robbins writes the letter to the basically to the government and says, give me money for the library. Yeah. And they keep on, <laughs> they keep on ignoring his letters. Then eventually... They send back, uh, I think it's like they send him like $200 and they say, we hope this ends your communication. And he's like, well, I'm going to start writing two letters a week now. And then eventually he gets that full library. That's what it was for me where I would write these letters and get a response. And that just basically encouraged me to keep on writing, Mm. not only to the Lakers, but then I would just fire off a letter to any team and every team and see if they would respond and send me things. And most of the teams did. Most of the teams sent back some sort of paraphernalia, whether it was uh, stickers or team photos or cards and things like that. Uh, The occasional poster came. I mean, some of those posters that I actually have on the studio walls at at, at the starters right now came from the teams, like the one from the Seattle Supersonics of uh, Derek McKee and Alden Polynes. That came from the Seattle Supersonics. So... Uh, I just I wrote to those teams and they occasionally sent back. It took sometimes six to eight weeks, but I mean I was so excited when I would come home from school and be a, uh, some sort of package for me from an NBA team, and I would just like whatever it was. I was like, great. I've still actually got some stickers that the San Antonio Spurs sent me as well because uh, uh, I, I dug those out and I found those. So you know I I, I was already already sort of hooked on the league and I just wanted to consume more and more of it as much as I could and slowly in the 90s we started getting a little bit more on channel 10 they started showing uh NBA action and uh inside stuff and things like that so I started to to be able to just consume a lot more but of course then that was also the Michael Jordan explosion so that really gave the NBA just more uh coverage everywhere everyone was sort of fascinated by seeing Michael Jordan we knew he was his prodigy uh, of course in the 80s but was he going to be able to turn that into championship success and obviously obviously he was and and that's sort of uh, you know fueled the growth of the league largely as well in the 90s um, so then as I grew up, uh, you know, my interest, you know, was still there, but I wasn't, I guess, like a little, a fanboy as such anymore. Or, you know, I sort of stopped writing letters, I guess, when I was probably 17 or 18, <laughs> you know, you start to sort of, uh, grow up a little bit, but you still had the posters on your walls though, right? Uh, well, dad's taken the posters <laughs> off, but honestly, like the posters that were on my bedroom wall and now also a lot of those are on the walls of the starter studio. It's incredible. Yeah. Like my, my bedroom wall when I was a 14 or 15 year old kid is actually now my place of work. So mm. there's a we've got a poster of Akeem Olajuwon before he's uh, corrected the spelling of his name to Hakim. Oh, right. Hakim on, on, yeah, it's incredible. It's going to be worth something. Uh, well, it's worth a lot to me. I'm not sure if, uh, I'm not <laughs> yeah. sure it'd be worth too much on the open market, but you'd probably get someone pay a hundred yeah. bucks for it or whatever. But, um, you know, so anyway, so I, as, as I grew up, I decided uh, I wanted to, to move out and, and I moved to London when I was around 22 years old, I think I was at the time, uh, because I just wanted to get out of Australia and explore mm. something else. And I lived in London for a couple of years and then I had a, a friend of mine who was living in Toronto. And because for Australians to get a, a visa for America, a work visa, is very difficult. Um, certainly, you know, 20 years ago it was. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't something you could just sort of apply for. And there was no reciprocal agreement between Australia and the USA like there was with Australia and Canada where you could get a work visa, a temporary one for a year. And so I moved to Toronto in 2001. And that for me was really, really important because it actually got me living in a city where they had an NBA team and not just any NBA team. It was when Vince Carter had uh, really erupted as a, as a phenomenon uh, in the NBA and it was fantastic. So that was my first real experience uh, living in a city, following the NBA day to day closely like that. And, and it was everything that I hoped for. It was just, you know, the great storylines, the great games, the big dunks, the highlight finishes. Uh, and it was incredible. 
but then my visa expired and I, and I couldn't stay in Canada. So I, I, I returned to London for mm. a couple more years and uh, that was great. I was still following the NBA as much as I could, but it's different when you know, you're know you living in a city that's uh, not an NBA city. So you have to cover, follow it all on the internet, which was still fun, but not quite the same as like coming home from work and getting ready to watch a game. Yeah, and not quite what it is now where you pretty much, if you want to, you can watch every single game somehow with league pass and everything oh yeah for Back sure then it was probably a couple games exactly exactly yeah it doesn't matter now where you are in the world if you've got an internet connection you can watch the nba games in real time which is which is just something that's mind-boggling to me when if you tell me what it was like when i was 12 years old where it was like you know three weeks after the game you might get a game <laughs> and that's that's the one mm. you get for the week uh so anyway in uh, around 2000 and Six, I decided to move back to Canada. That was when uh, the law slightly changed where you were only allowed to have one work visa in Canada for your lifetime, but they changed the law where between Australia and Canadians, you could have multiple. So, but you had to be before you turned 31 and I was turning 30 that year. So I thought, well, I'm going to try to get another one and I did. And so I moved back to Toronto, Uh, but I knew it was only going to be for one year. So it was also a sort of temporary solution, but I thought, oh, well, one year is better than none. And so when I, when I got back to Canada, I had no real long-term plan. I was like, I live in Toronto. I was single. I didn't have a real strong career or not a career at all at that point. I had jobs, but not a career. You'd been working in banks, was it? That's right. Yeah, I was working in banks and, and banks were fine. Uh, they pay well. Um, the hours are pretty good, the Monday to Friday, nine to five type of lifestyle, but unfulfilling as a career for me, for sure. I, I didn't enjoy it, but again, you've got to do something and, and it paid the bills and it was fairly relatively easy work and it wasn't challenging or anything like that. But there was also no growth and no long-term prospects for me. So it was, it was all a temporary solution, even though I can admit that now, but at the time, you tried not to confront that because you didn't really want the reality of the situation being like, what am I going to do with my life career-wise? So anyway, I was back in Toronto and I thought, uh, you know, I've I've basically got a year here to, before I have to make a a firm decision. And so I had no plans on on settling down there and living there full time. But uh, certainly after probably it was about six weeks or two months or so, I I met a girl. And uh, so we started seeing each other and we went out for dinner and stuff. And I was cautious at the time not to get too involved in it because I, I didn't think it had a future. I just, I just, you know, I thought I'm not going to be here in uh, in less than a year's time, so I don't want to get too involved. But you charmed her. Yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> something like that. Anyway, we we yeah. um, you, you know, tricked her. Th- that's right. I, I think uh, I think she didn't have any better options at the time, so she was like, "All right, this one, this guy will do." And uh, as it turned out. We, we became very close with each other. And, and when my visa did expire, I had to leave, as I said, and I returned to Australia and I wasn't really sure what I was going to do. I, I remember thinking to myself, like, what do I do now? I mean, because I'm, I'm basically in love with this person, but I can't stay in the country. So we had a, a, a plan to try to meet up with each other and uh, try to continue a sort of long term, a long distance relationship. But those never last, and you often go in those thinking optimistically that maybe this one will, but uh, they just don't. And so mm. I, I had to sort of figure out something else. And so I moved to, back to London because London was obviously closer to Toronto than Melbourne was. And that way I was like, well, at least I can see Roxana uh, more often. Maybe every month I could fly over there or she could fly over to see me and we could try to maintain the relationship that way. But after I'd been away now probably six to eight weeks and we were in constant communication, texting and calling and, and all that. But, you know, the reality of the situation as well, we were, we were both 30. It was like there's not really any point to this, to continuing this if we're not going to actually be together. And so... I decided I felt strongly enough about her that um, the only way we could be together would be if we got married. And so one, I think it was a Sunday afternoon when we were having our usual phone conversation. I was in a phone box in London, I think in Putney somewhere. And I just decided, I asked, I decided to ask her to marry me thinking she would probably hesitate and probably say, ah, you know, it's nice, but I'm not sure if that's the right decision for us. But that wasn't her response at all. In fact, she didn't hesitate. She said, yes, straight away, let's do it. And so I was like, oh, okay, well, I, I guess I'm moving back to Toronto then. <laughs> and so I was obviously very excited for that. But the, you know, the sort of the, the, the reality of the situation now was I said, well, I, I, you know, you can't ask someone to marry them and then backtrack on that. You have to go through with it. And so 
I decided I was working at London again in, in a, one of my old jobs in the bank and I decided, well, I'm going to have to sort of pack things up and, and Roxana and I decided we would, wouldn't tell anybody until I got back to Toronto and we were living together for another three or four weeks just to sort of make sure that this was the right decision that we both wanted to do it and, uh, and so we would go ahead and so I, I tidied up things in London, I, I went back to Toronto and after only probably two weeks, we, we both sort of decided that, that we you know, really felt that we did want to get married and, and continue down that path. And so we did. And so uh, that was in the April, I believe. And then in the August of that same year, we got married. And that was great. Uh, you know, I was very happy, um, thrilled to have met such a, a fantastic woman and, uh, and for her to now be my wife. But the uh, big, I guess, elephant in the room for myself was I had no money. I had no career. I had no prospects. So I really wasn't sure what I was going to do with myself, and so how old were you at this point? I was, uh, I think, well, I think I turned thirty-one uh, at that point, mm. if uh, if that's right. So you're probably starting to think, what am I doing? Exactly. I mean, where am I going? Exactly. When you're twenty-one, you know, you're sort of like, well, I can, you know, I, I've I've got plenty of time, and things might work out. But then all of a sudden, you hit your thirties, and you're like, uh oh, now what do I do? Without any plan, and without any idea of what you're going to do, you have to you have to start taking some risks. And so we'd been in Toronto, uh, I'd been back in Toronto around about a year by this stage and uh, I was working with a friend of mine, I had a job, I was do doing some accounting work. Again, it was basically just getting some money coming in but it wasn't, uh, there certainly wasn't any long-term uh, security in that job. But what mm. happened in Toronto was this sports journalism school uh, just opened and it basically was, the, the advertising behind it was like, we'll teach you all the skills you need. Uh, to make it in the sports media journalism world, and I thought, well, this is perfect. This is this is exactly what I need because I've, I was always interested in being some sort of journalist, some sort of sports uh, uh, journalist position, and now I needed some training behind me. So I thought, great. And so I signed up uh, for this course, but it wasn't cheap. It was actually incredibly expensive, and for someone who really didn't have any money, that presented another problem because I was like, well, how am I going to pay for this? And so. <laughs> Incredibly, my wife's sister came along and, and uh, she, she had some savings and she was able to help me uh, make the payments for these at the start. And I, I, we, we had an agreement that I'd pay her back with interest um, over time and you know, so she was fantastic about lending me the money. But again, it, it's a big thing to ask your sister-in-law when you've just been married for a lot of money to help you pay for school when you <laughs> don't really know where it's going to lead to. Uh, but you know, again, I had to take on that challenge. I had to, I had to at least put myself in a position where something might happen because at, at the other option I had was nothing really. It was like, again, going back to working at the bank or finding some other dead end job that would, would make ends meet, but it wouldn't give me any real satisfaction, uh, from a career perspective. Anyway, yeah. so after, once I joined that, the, the journalism school, it was great. And, uh, some of the sports TV networks in Toronto, would offer intern positions and I saw one that was for the score which was a all sports TV network in Toronto at the time. It doesn't exist anymore as it did, it's now only a mobile app but at the time it was great because it went up against the two sort of big juggernauts of uh, TSN and Sportsnet and the good thing about the score is it gave an opportunity to people who ordinarily wouldn't have a chance and so for me it was fantastic. It was a, a chance to be an intern in the web department which I, I didn't know a whole lot about but I thought this is at least something for me to get my foot in the door and so I started interning there and it was a couple of nights a week and weekends, kind of hours as needed but I really saw an opportunity that if I could if I could convince the boss there to give me a job, then at least I'm starting to get some money coming in and I'm starting to get a little bit of a return on the investment of my uh, career education. And as it turned out, after about nine months of being a full, uh, an intern and probably the last four or five months of that internship, almost full time. So I put in a ton of unpaid hours. Mm. Uh, they offered me a job to start there and I was like, great. And the job itself wasn't wasn't great but basically it was in the web department it was like we need someone to basically just bring in content to the website of our uh, of our operation so whatever that is if it go on to the watch the blue jays and getting some content there or the raptors or the uh, nfl when it was in toronto wrestling and tennis and golf and motor racing whatever was there it was for me to sort of go out there take a camera and go out and shoot some stuff and see if we can find a little feature to put up on the web. That in itself must have been pretty amazing to you that you'd landed that kind of gig because, you know, compared to coming from a bank or whatever, that was really what you were setting out to do already, right? 
Yeah, it, it was. Um, it was kind of daunting as well because I didn't really know what I was doing. I had had some experience <laughs> uh, producing and, and shooting and editing and things like that. But that was at the journalism school where it was no one ever saw it. It was never going to get aired and you weren't, you know, you didn't have to sort of give it to a boss. It was to a teacher and they were great things. And then, you know, so there's no real, no real, um, I mean, you want to impress your, your teacher, of course, but if you don't, then it doesn't really matter. But when you're getting paid and your boss is, 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 uh, is the person who's judging these things, you want them mm. to be impressed. And so I, I didn't know a, a lot about what I was doing, but I just thought, I'm just going to take the camera. I'm going to go there. And sometimes I went with a reporter and sometimes I just went by myself. And I just thought, just shoot everything you can and then bring it back to the studio. And if you can put something together, it only had to be 90 seconds to two minutes or, or, or longer if possible. But as long as you could get like a 90 minute clip, a 90 second clip, excuse me, mm. you could, that was something that could be, uh, that could work on the internet. So I saw that as a, as a really interesting opportunity and I tried to make the most of it. And anything that came up, because I, I obviously I wanted to go and do basketball and interview Kobe Bryant and things like that, but that, that just wasn't possible at the time. So instead you had to take the sort of leftovers of, of the sports. And I remember doing interviewing a race car driver, a Canadian race car driver who was, you know, uh, uh, not that well known, but the, uh, his agent, I think, called up us and said, hey, can you come and do a feature on our on this race car driver? And I, and I knew nothing about uh, the race car driver at all, but I thought, great, <laughs> here's an opportunity for me to put my skills to the test. And so yeah. I went out and I interviewed him. Uh, I put the feature together and, and, you know, it was it was fine. People liked it, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't exactly the most mind-blowing feature of all time, but it just gave me the confidence and the skills uh, that I could I could do these things. And I knew that if I kept working at it, I would keep, I would get better at it. Yeah. That's one of those skills, I guess, is the versatility to be able to go into any setting and come away with what you need to have, like a story. Like when I was a journalist and the sports reporters were away, you had to fill in and pretend like you knew what you were talking about when you were interviewing someone with lawn bowls or surf life saving or something that you'd never thought about. And then yeah. suddenly you're writing a story about it. So yeah, I can, I can relate to that. Yeah. And the attitude I, I always took was this story is going to get done. If someone's offering it to you, then you do it because if you turn it down, then they're going to offer it to the other person, the next person. And that person might go out there and have an incredible story or an incredible experience. And then you've turned down that opportunity. So uh, yeah. For me, as well, you have to understand where you are in the pecking order. I mean, they're not going to give you the Kobe Bryant interview first off. You might get there sure. eventually if you've done a hundred other interviews along the way and you show you can handle it. But what is very important is to understand that when you start out really anywhere, you start at the bottom and then you have to earn uh, your way up the ladder. And so for me, I, I felt that if I would take, if I would accept all these uh, other offerings that at one point, then maybe you will get a chance to interview someone who's who's a, a lot well known, mm. and someone who's you know a bigger fish, if you like. Sure. And being an I guess an intern at the age of thirty one was that something where you just had to kind of swallow any pride that you might have when most of the other interns would probably be guys coming out of high school or university, or was it not like that? No, no, you're right. It was like that. And, and even at that sports journalism school that I went to, I mean, they were calling me grandpa because most <laughs> of the other kids were coming out of high school and they were 19 or 20 or, or you know, certainly not in their, in their late 20s to 30s. Yeah. So I certainly was the older guy. But again, you have to just get over that. You can't, you can't sure. be too sensitive. You have to just decide, well, listen, yeah, I did get a late start in my life, but I'm going to try to make the most of it right now. And you, you yeah. certainly have a different attitude as well when you're that old because some of the younger guys at the journalism school, if they didn't feel like going in, they just wouldn't turn up. They, they just, you know what, I'm not going in today. And they would ditch a few classes. But for me, mm. I had such a financial investment and such an important career investment. Yeah. I turned up for every class. I put in extra hours on the weekends and, uh, and tried, to make, awesome. yeah, tried to make the most of it. I can imagine that the age thing could hold a lot of people back from giving it a go because like even... Like when I was 16 or 17, I didn't want to learn how to skateboard because there was 10-year-olds doing kickflips at the skate park and I was going to look like an idiot in front of them. So, yeah, yeah. I think uh, it's probably something a lot of people would admire that ability to just, you know, go in there and do what you need to do to get where you want to be. Well, it's, it comes down to as well, I mean, if, if you're going to let those sort of insecurities control your life, then you mm. really wouldn't get anywhere. I mean, you know, yeah. I, anyone... Uh, you know, at, at some point, you, you become the old dorky man. You know, I mean, when, when we're young, we sort of, we think we're cool and fashionable and, and hip and all that. But 
at some point in your life, well, people look at you and go, well, man, that, 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 there's an old man right there. And, uh, you know, it, TJ Maxx. Exactly, exactly. It, it happens so quickly. So. <laughs> Uh, so you're there at the score and I guess this is where the basketball Jones comes into it because you started there 2009 and they rocked up a year later was it? Yeah so they they arrived I believe in 2010 is when they started the score and I, I knew mm-hmm. who the basketball Jones were because I knew Skeets from the, bar, the Ball Don't Lie blog on Yahoo mm. and so yeah. but I didn't actually know he was a, a Toronto guy I, I sort of just assumed he was some New York hipster who was uh, putting together this blog. I mean, it was weird to sort of know that, oh man, he's actually from Toronto. He's, or, you know, from Stratford. He's not far away, but he's a Canadian kid. So when they joined, I, I was aware of kind of what they were doing. Not, not totally, but I knew like they were a basketball oriented group. And so when they started at the score, they started doing their daily show, uh, Skeets and Tass and JD. Uh, and Matt Austin had come along as the producer. They started doing their daily show that went up on the web. And so I started sort of watching it. I was like, what, what is this? These guys are just doing a basketball show. Like where's all the sort of, uh, all, the, all the producers and the studio crew and all that. And they didn't have all that. It was JD on camera and Skeets and Tass, <laughs> uh, JD like behind the camera and Skeets and Tass on camera. And then Matt would kind of put the, build the show together afterwards and add a little few photos and other features and whatever. And they would put it up and I was like, these guys seem to me like they're just talking about basketball every day. This is incredible. And um, this is something that I would love to be a part of. And so I wasn't really sure how to uh, approach them, but I wanted to make it clear to them that I was a big basketball fan and that I feel felt that I could be a good addition to their team. And so from time to time, I would walk past their office because they had their own office and, and I would sort of make myself known and you know talk a little bit of basketball and also try to point out things that I might have seen that they might like to talk about. And so that happened from time to time. And then there were a couple of things that happened where, uh, like I offered my help to them as well. I said, listen, if you guys ever need a hand with anything, let me know. And so they they were filming uh, an episode, their 666th episode, and they made it this sort of whole thing about the devil and, 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 uh, you know, like (laughs) 666. And so JD, the uh, producer, or, you know, JD, the, the director at the time said to me, uh, well, listen, we need someone to help us on the camera today. Uh, so can you do it? You said you wanted help. Can you do it? You have to come in at, you know, when we shoot at nine o'clock or whatever. And this is what I want you to do. And I was like, yep, no problems. I'll, I'll do it. And so we did that. And then there was another shoot we did or that they did called White Vegas. Uh, I, I can't remember exactly who the player was, but they were talking about Toronto and how the city of Toronto is like White Vegas. When teams come to Toronto, they like to get out and party and have fun because it's a great city. And so so the basketball Jones at the time shot this video called White Vegas and, and JD said to me again, he goes, uh, we're going out on a shoot today. Um, you know, you always said you wanted to help, so we might need you. Come along. And I was working my, my actual job at the time at the score, but I said to JD, yep, let's go. And so I just ducked out without permission to go and sort of uh, tag along. <laughs> and so we were shooting this feature and I was trying to sort of figure out exactly what it was I was doing and I offered the odd suggestion here or there, but I was, I was very careful not to try to be, be too uh, involved. It was more like an observing uh, feature for me where I wanted to observe how they do things. But then if I had some input to make, I would, I would try to offer it to them. And so they put together that video. It's a fun video. I'm not sure if you've seen it, but it's still up there on the internet somewhere. It still lives out there somewhere. And so at this point, I'd started to establish some sort of relationship. It was very informal, uh, but I think I'd made it known to the guys at Basketball Fan, yep, and I like this sort of different angle that they're bringing to the coverage of the game. Which if we can touch on that for yes. a bit, it was really like a fun kind of casual approach, like a fan talking about a game rather than an analyst or a former player, right? Yeah, I mean, they certainly weren't wearing jackets and ties when they were doing their show. It was t-shirts and jeans and it was really a fan's point of view. And that, that's what made it so yeah. much fun for me that it wasn't, I mean, there was a structure, but it was very loose. It was more about, we can put our opinion on on these things and we can show bias towards our team, the Raptors, because we are Raptors fans. But it was never to the point where it was, this is just Raptors ranting or anything like that. It was league coverage and when the Raptors were relevant, yeah. uh, you know, they, they would touch on it. So that's what made it interesting for me. It was like they, they brought a, an angle that wasn't out there for uh, any real sports coverage or any basketball coverage and they were making it entertaining and fun. And so... As I say, at this point, 
I had made some sort of contact, but there was no real opportunity for me to work full time with them. But then, oddly enough, during the NBA lockout of, of 2011, the guys, there was no league on, so they didn't have anything to cover. And so it was like, what are, what are they going to do? I mean, there, there was if they weren't covering basketball, there was nothing for them to do. So they somehow managed to convince the bosses at the score to say, listen, there's no basketball, but let's go on a, on a tour of America, a podcast tour, and give the fans yeah. still who, who follow us podcasts, like because that's what we do. And, and basically it was like, we need to do this uh, to keep our job. And so yeah. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just laughing because I remember the alternate idea was to do like a like a big brother kind of bubble outside and stay in there until the lockout was over. That's right. Yeah, that was the original idea, um, but that was going to be too expensive. And, and that was also, I mean, that was a crazy idea because they weren't going to leave that bubble for until yeah. the league came back, which could have been over a year. But, you know, and, and <laughs> you know, their wives and girlfriends and, and things at the time were like, Okay, I mean this is crazy, but anyway, so that didn't that didn't fall uh, that didn't come through. Instead, this plan to go around America, go to nine cities and do a podcast in each city. It was a five week trip. Uh, somehow, again, the, the bosses at the score were like, "Okay, yeah, that sounds fun. Let's uh, let's send you guys off uh, uh, to do this trip." And I, so at the time, I actually had just gotten back from Australia with my wife. We'd, we'd been out to Australia for our first visit. And uh, so I came back and I wanted to, you know, again, just let the guys know I was still around. And I walked into the office and Matt and JD were uh, at the whiteboard writing down all these cities on the board. And so we were just talking, hey, how's it going? Great, you know. And then um, I think it was Matt said to me, he goes, oh, what are your plans for, for November? And I was like, uh, I was like, I mean, I have no other plan other than just working that. And, and he and JD said, well, we're going on this uh, trip. We're going on this podcast trip. It's called the No Season Required Trip. And um, we're, we're probably going to need an extra pair of hands, someone who can, you know, potentially shoot, potentially edit. Um, and, and basically, we don't even know what we might need you for. But there, there is uh, very likely going to be an opportunity for someone else to come on this trip with us and be there for whenever we need them. And, and, and would you like to come? And I was like, without even thinking about it, I was like, yes, of course, I, that's amazing. I, I would love to go on that. Again, I was capable of shooting things and, and doing some minor editing, but I was certainly not at a level where I felt totally confident in my ability to do whatever they asked. But I also knew that if I turned down this opportunity, as, as I was saying before, they were going to ask somebody else and somebody else was going to go on that trip. So I didn't want to give anybody else the opportunity. I didn't even want to give Matt and JD the chance to even uh, offer it to them while I was thinking about that decision because I always felt that if they had offered it to somebody else before they had an answer from me and that other person had said yes they're going then I may not have been able to uh, go back and, and, and accept that chance so what I should point out as well is uh, my wife was pregnant with our first child at the time uh, she, so yeah. we'd just gotten back from Australia she was only three or four months pregnant so it wasn't like she was about to give birth by any means but uh, I came home from work that night and said to her, "Like, uh, so um, I'm going to be um, I'm going to be traveling a little bit here. It's going to take. Uh, I'm going to be gone, gone for five weeks. You know, is that okay?" And you know, her first response was like, "Oh, what's what's it for? What's it about?" And when I explained it to her, uh, she was incredibly supportive. She was so, um, you know, like, "Yes, do it, go for it." Even though I could tell it was heading into another long, cold, dark winter in Toronto and she was pregnant and, uh, you know, she had lots of friends and her sister was living there. So it wasn't as though I was abandoning her in the middle of nowhere. I mean, she was very comfortable in the city, but at the same time, to leave your partner for five weeks, it's a long time. It's a very long time. So she was incredibly supportive. She knew this was an opportunity that I was really hoping to get. And so uh, that, was, that was fine. She was fully behind it. But the problem I had at the time was my boss and I, we didn't have a great relationship. And when he heard that I was going to be gone for five weeks, he basically just said, no, he's not going. I don't want him to go. It wasn't, there wasn't any reason behind it other than like, I don't want him to have this opportunity. So that threw a hmm. spanner in the works because I, I, I said to JD and Matt, I said, listen, I, I'm, I want to go. Like, don't listen to my boss. I, I definitely want to go. And so JD went and spoke to my boss and managed to uh, ask him about you know, why he wasn't going to let me go. And my boss was kind of stubborn and said, you know, no. But fortunately, JD had the uh, authority, I guess, to sort of overrule and say, well, we need him. He's been approved by, you know, uh, upper management to go. So if he wants to come, he's coming. And so I said, yep, I'm going. And so that obviously, uh, you know, caused a little bit of friction between me and my boss. But I, I also didn't care because I was like, well, I can't turn down this. This is it, yeah. yeah. 
and so we went on that tour and, and it was incredible it was uh it was five weeks and you know at times uh, during that trip i was like i'm not really sure you know what i'm supposed to be doing today but i'll just try to be there and be ready and if they need me to uh, shoot something i'll shoot it and uh because at this time as well we have to remember trey was on the team of course as well so mm. people who followed the show didn't know me at all like i i was i was nobody on the road you know when we met uh, fans or or other media members you know, no one was coming up and say oh you're lee from the basketball jet no one knew who i was so everything yeah. was about skeets and tass and trey and, and then you know uh, to a, to a lesser extent jd and matt because you didn't hear those guys on the show so um i was always kind of in the background taking photos and trying to just trying to be a helping hand as much as i could and we found out when we were in Miami, it was around Thanksgiving, we found out that the NBA had reached an agreement and they were going to be starting the season on Christmas Day. And so I thought, well, I don't want this to end when the, when the, when the tour ends. And I think we were in Boston and I, I remember talking to JD, we were having a coffee or something one morning and I said, uh, you know, JD, when, when this tour ends, um, I would love to keep working with you guys full time on the show if there's a chance to do that. And JD sort of you know, he, he didn't really commit at the time, but he said, listen, I'll, uh, yeah, we'll talk about it and, you know, we'll, we'll see what, see what can be done when we get back to Toronto. So it sounded, certainly sounded positive to me, uh, but there was no firm answer because I don't think JD could, could make a firm answer right then. I mean, those things have to be approved, sure. yeah. uh, by management. And so we got back to Toronto and yeah, it was only, uh, a few days. We, we all took a, we all took a few days off after spending five weeks in each other's company. We took a few days off and we got back and I think, you know, a, a week or so later, uh, JD said, yeah, you, you know, we, we want you to join us uh, full time. And, and, and so I was like, perfect. And so, uh, again, my boss didn't really have any say in it and he wasn't thrilled about it. But again, by that point it had moved past, it had moved past him having any control over my, uh, my position there. So it was fantastic. And then, and then I became a full-time member of, uh, what was still the basketball Jones. Hmm. And from what I remember, it was kind of a gradual, uh, involvement that you had. It started off, uh, working. I can't remember whether it was the mics or the soundboard or the camera or whatever it was, but yeah, well, you know, you became the Aussie fact checker, <laughs> and then you had a the the tweet of the week. So was that just you kind of trying to put your mark on as much as you could and kind of worm your way in? Yeah, I mean, again, the the, the role that I had, I guess, uh, I wasn't really sure how much I'd be contributing on air to the show. I mean, not, none at the start, but then certainly on the TV show because that's what it was. Uh, that's what it did sort of turned into at the time. Or oh, sorry, when I say TV show, it was more uh, it was produced uh, in the TV studio, and we started to have a little bit more uh, camera work and, and crew behind us. And then there was the daily, uh, a weekly TV show that actually aired on TV. But otherwise, it was just it was just a spruced up version of the uh, video podcast, mm. but with actual camera crew and, and studio behind us. So it looked a lot better. It was more slicker. And so uh, I wasn't really like I would contribute as far as like help Matt and JD produce the show and get photos and get uh, you know things that were needed for the show but I didn't have an on-air role and then slowly on the on the overdose it was called the Friday uh, drop uh, the Friday podcast version I was in the studio with Matt and JD in the in the uh, production studio and I would occasionally chime in when the guys were talking about things I would contribute and make a make the odd comment here or there whenever they were talking about a player and slowly, I started to get a little bit more involved. And, I, and the tweet of the week you mentioned, that was something that I brought up because I wanted to bring something new to the show that they didn't really have. And I thought the best way for me to make a contribution is to actually try to bring something that they don't have. So I didn't really know what it was going to be at the time. I just tried to find a funny tweet because that was when Twitter was like everyone loved Twitter. Now it's pretty awful. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty <laughs> vile website. But at the time, it was funny because you could see people's personalities uh, in their tweets and it was great and then uh, as I started uh, doing the tweets people would start, start sending me tweets and saying here here's a funny tweet maybe you could use this maybe you could use that and so then I would give shout outs to those people who would help try to make that uh, segment funny and so that was good and that sort of became then the tweet of the week army uh, grew out of that which is now it's it's grown out of control of course now if you're still uh, a long time listener of our show but for me it was just trying to add something to the show and then uh, I think it was the playoffs of 2012 when I joined the round table with Skeets, Tass and Trey full time. And so that, that gave me an opportunity to then be more involved in the basketball talk and bring my own opinion and analysis to the show. Uh, and, and I became obviously one of the panelists then. So that, that, was, that was great. 
And then we had uh, one more season in Toronto for the score, but we didn't have the video podcast anymore. That that went away because the score was in the process of, of selling. And so uh, they cut a lot of staff and they made a lot of changes and, and there was no longer a need for the, or they no basically didn't fund the podcast anymore as a, as a video version. So we right. just did a radio yeah. podcast version instead or an audio podcast version. And I was a contributor to that. Uh, and then at the end of the 2013 season, uh, that was our last season at the score. But fortunately, uh, we'd been talking with NBA TV up until that point, And uh, NBA TV had offered us uh, uh, the contract to come down and do our show on TV daily for NBA TV. Yeah. So in this time, is it still... Are you viewing this as your dream job or is it still hoping to get to somewhere like you've ended up at NBA TV now? But was that ever a thought that it could be something that would happen? I mean, in the back of your mind, you would love that opportunity. You would love for that to happen. But the reality of it for me was like, this just won't work because there's just too many obstacles, I think, to overcome moving all of us mm. down to Atlanta, getting work visas for us, and then doing a show for NBA TV. It just it just seemed to me that like it was almost like a tease that, that this is potentially something that could happen. But I just felt there was it was just too too much of an ask for it to actually happen. But uh, the, uh, the the Turner people really wanted us to come down and, and we all had to talk to our wives and girlfriends and, and convince them to move to America. And that, that would, to me was very, very challenging because uh, at that point, we my wife Roxana and I had one child, Sebastian, and, and Roxana was very, very happy uh, living in Toronto. She had lots of friends there. She had a fantastic job. It's a great city. And we were going to be moving to a place where we didn't know anybody, uh, into a new country and we were, you know, not only that, new but uprooting, <laughs> yeah, new weather, yeah, uprooting her from uh, from everything that was very comfortable in her life, and so I was very anxious because I wanted to take this opportunity, but I really, I, I thought I don't want to, don't want it to cost me my family because sometimes that can happen where if one person doesn't want to move and the other person does, then it, you know at some point something has to give, but. Roxana was incredibly supportive and what really helped as well was she went to her boss and explained the situation and she was able to get a transfer down which is incredible uh, because uh, for, with her company that they were able to transfer to her down so she would continue her job and she would be working from home. So that was a huge relief for me because uh, Roxana, my wife, is a, is a very career-oriented person. She's not a sort of person who's like, oh, well, if I don't have to work, who cares? I'll just go to the salon all day or, you know, <laughs> not do anything. She she was very, very determined to, to maintain her career. And, and, and I didn't want her to sacrifice that either. Uh, but I also didn't want to miss out on my own incredible opportunity. So we managed to do it and she was very, very uh, accommodating and, and, and very incredibly supportive in, in making the move. And, and now we've been here for five years and it's it's been fantastic, but it certainly uh, has had its challenges over the years, especially the first six to 12 to 18 months, because when you move down here, you know, simple things like just getting a bank account or your driver's license or, uh, you know, your uh, medical insurance, things like that. These things are all very complicated uh, I mean, it's not complicated to get your driver's license or bank account, but it's just it's it's a lot of logistics and a lot of work and going and turning up, and you've got to do all these things that just make things settling in a little bit more challenging. So uh, that that at the start was tough for us, but now that we've been here for a long time, things are a lot different, of course, because you feel you're settled and you feel you've got some sort of grip on on what's going on. Although right now, I mean, the political climate of this country is just uh, incredibly crazy. It's just, uh, it, it's vile. Uh, it, you know, the, the, the government is just crazy. I mean, it's, it's absolutely crazy. And they're, they're so divisive yeah. and they're trying to call, you know, they're creating a separation. Senior Marco Rubio oh, tweets. I mean, it's, it's just bizarre that you can live in a country <laughs> where, you know, the president can be a, a vile racist bigot and, and people sort of don't care. I mean, they don't do anything to sort of change that. But anyway, Getting back to the point here, uh, you know, anytime you move, even if you move house from one in, within the same city, there's a lot of things you have to do, you know, moving your, your mailing address and, your, your, you know, your internet and all that sort of stuff. I mean, all those things get magnified when you're moving from one city to a new city to a new country with different laws and different rules and regulations and, you know, um, you know when you're not citizens of that country as well. So there were a lot of challenges for us. Uh, fortunately, we managed to, I guess, overcome them in the sense that now we feel comfortable and, we, you know, now things are sort of back to normal but uh it was very tough at the start for us uh to maintain that as well 
because I was working, we were, we were trying to get a TV show off the ground that we didn't really know what we we're doing. It was a daily TV show. So the expectations are much higher than they were when you're just doing a, a podcast in Toronto, you know, at that, that we were doing a couple of years ago. Now you had to be on time and you had to be um, good at what you were doing. And, and, you know, the show had to be fun and engaging and entertaining and people had to like it and watch it. So there was a lot of pressure to, to make this move worth it. Yeah, I can imagine like from my conversation with Matt a couple of months ago, the technical side of organizing that show and the basketball Jones was kind of free flowing and loose. And that was kind of the style Taz and, and Skeets naturally, like they're pretty easygoing guys. And if something didn't go well, then, you know, you just roll with it. But on NBA TV, you have to be a lot more polished, I guess, because, you know, it's NBA TV and TNT. So you guys are going through this huge change and trying to create a product that people who don't haven't been following you for a long time will enjoy as well as the old fans and supporters. So going through that with all these uh, stresses of moving and everything you've mentioned, it must have been a really difficult time. But I guess the fact that you guys were all friends, such great friends, and doing this together must have helped a lot as well, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, having that support of each other. I mean, we all wanted it to succeed and we all wanted it to work. So we kind of had to just dig down and, and keep working hard and trying to make or find a formula that was going to work for us. And I think the biggest change and probably the most important change as well was the first year we did an hour-long show every day at at noon. So that was tough in itself, just to grind one out every day. But what happened at the end of that season is we went to Las Vegas Summer League and we did half-hour shows instead. We decided let's just change things up and do half-hour shows and see if we can uh, make them a little bit more energetic and a little bit more lively. And what we realized from that straight away was like this is what – the daily show needs to become it needs to become half an hour because an hour is just too long and you end up yeah. there's just i mean there's always you can always find things to talk about but they're never as exciting so instead with half an hour we can compact a lot more into that show have a lot more fun sure. with it and also not burn us all out that's the other thing i mean this is this is an incredible job i always want to say that to people i, I appreciate this job and I, every day i wake up and i can't believe that i get to do it but at the same time, you know, it, it's when you when you're talking basketball every single day for an hour, uh, you can get to a point where you're just a little bit uh, tired from it, you know, over over a long season. So because it's not just Monday to Friday, uh, what we do. I mean, there's always things happening on Saturday and Sunday. So it really does consume a lot of your energy and a lot of your time just to be on top of things because you can't ignore anything. You can't just say, well, I'm I'm off this weekend. I'm not going to follow the NBA. You need to be fresh on Monday and ready to go and, and to be up to date with everything. So, you know, it definitely, it takes a lot out of you. Uh, the, the, the rewards of it, are, you know, are all fantastic and all worth it. But you do get to a point where it's like, man, you know, like I'm feeling, I'm feeling like when it, all, for all of us, I mean, I'll, I'll speak for the six of us here. I know that when we get to the end of uh, Summer League now every year, we all look forward to a break from basketball because uh, we've been talking about it for so long, sort of nine, ten months at that point. And you just you just want to have a little bit of a rest from it. So um, you know that that's uh, something that's really important. That when you have a job like this, that you don't get to a point where you you get sick of it because you're burnt out from talking about it too too much. Yeah, I can only imagine. But Lee, you must look around and see Grant Hill and Isaiah Thomas and Shaq and Charles and all these guys that you grew up watching and. You must just have to pinch yourself sometimes, right? <laughs> yeah, I do. I mean, it's crazy. It is crazy because uh, for me, particularly Isaiah Thomas, uh, when I was starting out following the NBA and, and you know, as I was a 12 or 13-year-old playing basketball, I was a small guy. I was never one of the big kids in my uh, on my team. So I was always kind of the point guard. And so when I saw Isaiah Thomas, who relatively speaking is very small for the NBA, I mean, he's six foot, six foot one at the time, but he was an incredibly tough resilient player and he was the best player on those Pistons championship teams he Mm. gave me the sort of encouragement and belief that maybe I could make it in the NBA you know because it's like look this guy (laughs) can make it and he's not six foot nine or or six foot ten or anything like that so now when I see him in the office and I talk to Isaiah a lot and you know we talk about his days at the Pistons we talk about the bad boys and 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 how he used to go up against Jordan and the Lakers and the and the uh, Celtics and it is incredible for me because even though this stuff is now nearly 30 years old, 
it doesn't feel like that when I see Isaiah and I'm talking to him. I, 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 can, I can remember things that happened in games that I saw and I can ask him about those and his memory is incredible. <laughs> he remembers them as well. So we're talking about things. I said, well, you know, when the Bulls made this play and, and you guys defended like this, but you didn't do that in game one or two, but you did it in game three. And then he's like, yeah, well, Chuck and I were talking about it and Joe. And it's like, for wow. me, that experience, it, it's like I'm almost in the huddle with Isaiah at the time. Mm. And, and, and that, that's incredible. At the finals a couple of years ago, uh, we were at the end of a media day and Isaiah was there and there was no one on the court. And so uh, there was a ball and we started shooting around. And again, I started talking to Isaiah about stuff. I said, oh, what about, you know, against uh, the Blazers in 1990 when this happened and that happened? And, and, and Isaiah would start talking to me about it. And I was like, I was like, this is incredible. I mean, I'm, I'm actually getting uh, a recap of things that happened from the guy who was the MVP of the finals. And so, <laughs> yeah. so I, I guess I was never overawed when I see guys like Isaiah or Grant Hill because I always feel that I can speak to them uh, confidently yeah. about, their career or their game or, or something that happened in their, um, in, in, you know, in their basketball playing days without having to think that I'm out of my depth. Um, but it sure. is still incredible when you see Shaquille O'Neal walking around the office and it's like he, he, he's a monster, a monster of a human being, but he's a gentle giant as well. He, he always says hello. He's always friendly. He might give you a, a fist bump or whatever. And so he is, he's a fantastic personality and someone who, you know, considering how much attention he gets, he's very, very generous with his time because someone like Isaiah Thomas, he can kind of, um, you know, merge his way into a crowd without people necessarily knowing who he is. But Shaq can't go anywhere without people pointing and getting their phone out and trying to take a photo yeah. and asking for an autograph because he's so big. He can't hide himself, but he's very accommodating with all that. So it's great to have those guys now as as colleagues. You know, we're on the same level as far as our, our careers right now. I mean, obviously... I never played in the NBA, so I don't know what it's like to, to have uh, had mm. their basketball playing career. But in our careers now, we're, we're basically at a, a you know very similar level. They, they, they're obviously you know, world-known guys, famous around the world, but they do the same sort of job and they have the same sort of uh, you know, things to have to deal with in a work sense that, that we also deal with now. And you also beat Isaiah Thomas in a shootout, right? <laughs> yeah, th- yeah, I did. <laughs> I did beat we, we were playing. Uh, we were playing horse. Uh, and I beat him in that, and then we played a, a little game of one-on-one, and Isaiah said to me, uh, all right, let's play. It's up to two. Basically, you just got to score two two baskets. And I was like, well, I'm going for it here. I'm going for it because the thing about Isaiah, he's one of those guys who's just so competitive that there are no no easy baskets. And I thought, you know, he I was wearing shorts and, and basketball shoes at the time, and he had pants and, uh, you know, sort of tennis shoes on. But I thought, I don't care. If I get a chance here, I'm going to go in and, and try to beat Isaiah. And uh, I, I hit my first, or you know, I hit one of my first shots, and then I missed a couple, and he missed a couple, and then I got the ball back, and I, I went down in the post, and I sort of flipped the ball up over, and I scored, and I won, and it was like, I can't believe I just beat Isaiah Thomas in a game <laughs> of basketball. It's incredible. So hopefully, uh, with the finals starting next week, hopefully he's out on the road, and we can have a rematch. I, I, uh, yeah. I would love to be able to play him again. He'll put the uh, Jordan Rules defense yeah. on you, maybe. Ah, that would be amazing if you did that, yeah. <laughs> nice. Uh, so, last time we talked, you mentioned a few kind of like sliding doors moments that uh, there's make or break moments that, you know, you could have gone down a completely different path if you hadn't taken them. So, when you look back, does it kind of, I don't know, is there anything you can take away from that or is it just pure luck? Uh, well, luck has a big part uh, to do with it for sure. Um, what, what I can take away from it though and what I do know over the last 10 years, I mean the biggest sliding door moment for me was coming back to Canada the second time uh, because that uh, allowed me to meet Roxana of course which is you know the most important person that I've ever met in my life, most significant person. Uh, and then there was almost like a domino effect from there. I met her and then I was able to stay in Canada. Then this sports journalism school opened and then the internship at the score opened and then the NBA season went on strike and or the lockout, yeah. excuse me. Um, and then NBA TV came along. So a lot of things happened to just be in the right place at the right time. Um, because uh, I get a lot of people, particularly from Australia, young uh, journalism hopefuls who, who send me messages on Twitter or emails or whatever, and they say, you know, you've got the job that I want. You know, you're talking NBA for NBA TV, wearing T-shirts on the show, and it's a casual, loose environment. You know, so tell me what you did to, to, to get there so I can see if I can do it myself. And, and I always say to people, like, I didn't, I didn't plan any of this out. I, I didn't sit at home one night and... and and, and yeah. draw this you worked out. worked in a bank. <laughs> no, exactly. I, I mean, 
what happened was I got to a point where I thought I need to just change things and I need to take some uh, take some chances here and take some risks and not necessarily knowing what the outcome was going to be and I think that's what the most important thing is to, for anybody to, to sort of know is like if you if you want to change something about sort of your career or what you're doing then you have to change it yourself you can't expect someone to come along and say to you you know hey go and do this for me or go and do that for me. You have to put yourself in a position where things might happen. There's no guarantees that they will, but at least if you're in a position where things might happen, then the outcome might be different or might be better for you. And so I, I look back at uh, things that I've done where I have taken the chances and that really encourages me now to take more chances and to take more risks, knowing that not everything is going to pay off, but the more that you ask and the more that you try to do things, the more likely is something's going to happen because just this year alone, uh, it was the, the the all-star weekend in Los Angeles. It was the 30 year anniversary of Larry Bird, uh, hitting his, winning his third straight three point shootout. And, and the iconic moment there where as he's shooting the ball in the final, the last ball on the rack, he needs it to win. He shoots it. And as he releases it, he raises his finger and he starts walking off knowing that it's good. And so I thought this is a perfect opportunity to interview Larry Bird about that and, and, and see if I can talk to him about it and even get him to recreate it for me. But what had happened was just before uh, that was about to, I, I put in the request to try to do that, NBA TV, our bosses came back and said, well, actually, Kevin McHale is going to be talking to Larry Bird and doing an interview with him anyway. So it was kind of like it was not going to work because they, you know, they're already doing something with Larry anyway. And so I was like, okay, well, disappointing, but you know what, that's, that's fair. I mean, Kevin McHale's uh, an NBA Hall of Famer and, and, you know, he's a former teammate of Larry Bird. So you can understand why that would be given more priority than trying to do something with, with a relative unknown. <laughs> so um, when, I, when I was talking with Matt, our, uh, our producer, Matt and I, were said, he, Matt said, is there anyone else you want to do it with? And I'm like, well, I mean, you know, yeah, what about Ray Allen? Someone like Ray Allen. And he's like, where's Ray Allen these days? And I said, well, he's, he's probably in Miami. I mean, he might do it. And Matt said, well, what about Steph Curry? And I'm like, I'm like, well, sure, I'd love to do it with Steph Curry. But you just sort of felt that he was uh, out of reach. He was out yeah. of reach. Yeah. And it's like, I mean, he's a two-time MVP uh, on the Warriors. And I was like, I'm not sure if that worked. But then I said to Matt, well, ask him. Sure. Let, let, like, if he says no, then he says no. Anyway, so Matt, Matt did his part, and that's what Matt's role is. He sort of uh, facilitates these things. He puts in the request to our PR team, and they go to the Warriors, and et cetera, et cetera. And uh, a couple of weeks later, it was only about a week before the All-Star game, and uh, I said to Matt, like, you know, have you heard anything back from the Warriors? And he said, well, we put the request in. We haven't heard anything back yet. And then it was a Wednesday night. Uh, Matt sent me a message, and it was like 9.30 at night, and he said, uh, just heard back from the Warriors. Steph's in you're going to Golden State tomorrow night after the show, shooting something with him on Friday. And I was like, okay, great. <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> this is fantastic. And so there was a lot of coordinating then between myself and Matt and the Warriors about how what we wanted to do and how we're going to do it. Because the other thing is you have to remember with, with guys like Steph Curry and a lot of media, uh, uh, a lot of players with the media, if they grant you an interview, it might be a couple of minutes long um, and a stand-up interview and that's all it is. But what I wanted to do was was go through uh, basically Steph's shooting routine and see if he could teach me how to become a three-point shooter and to, to go through, because I do the uh, NBA three-point shootout at the All-Star Weekend yeah. and I try to score 20 points and the idea was for Steph to coach me and maybe I could get to 20 points. Anyway, so this is all kind of happening very, very much real time. Like Matt's, uh, Matt's in touch with our people who are in touch with the Warriors and then so the Thursday I turn up for work, we do our show, I catch a flight to San Francisco after the show at like nine o'clock at night it's, it's, it's a five-hour flight out to San Francisco. I wake up and I get to shoot around in the morning uh, for the Warriors. And I'm talking to the Warriors PR guy who's a fantastic, uh, fantastic person, Ray Ritter. He does an incredible job for the Warriors. And I said to him, um, you know, do you, do you know exactly what it is I want to do? And I had to sort of brief him on it. And Ray was like, uh, yeah, you know, you've got, uh, you've got eight minutes or something here with Steph. And I'm like, uh-oh, eight minutes. Like, <laughs> I don't know if this is going to work or not. But then I went up to Steph and I said, hey, Steph, how you doing, blah, blah, blah. And I said, do you know what it is I'm trying to do? And Steph's like, "Not, no. And so I then had to explain the idea to Steph. And then I had to go and shoot with Steph. And I thought, there's no way eight minutes is going to work. Anyway, so we started shooting. We started playing around. And, and we got through the feature. And um, I could see the PR guy there, Ray, was sort of looking over after, after, I mean, well over eight minutes, seeing how close we were to wrapping up. 
And anyway, it took us about half an hour to shoot it, and Steph was unbelievable. Like the whole time, Steph was never impatient or rushed or anything. He he understood I was trying to do a feature, and he was really accommodating uh, to me for that, and and it was great. And so afterwards, uh, I put the feature together and I put it up and we put it on our show, and it was incredible. But again. Uh, what this all comes back to is just that opportunity of just trying and asking and seeing what might happen. And look, the feature I did, it could have been better if we had more time and more preparation work, but you can't worry about that in the situation. You just have to go with what you've got and see if you can uh, make whatever you can out of the, the circumstances that you that you had. And so uh, it was great. I, I had 15 hours in San Francisco. I flew out uh, you know, that night after the Thursday night, and then I flew back on the Friday and it was an incredible experience, an incredible opportunity, and, and something that I really, really uh, found to be very special to me because I, I didn't realize, I guess, at the time, but I was just shooting around with maybe the greatest shooter of all time yeah. in the NBA, a two-time MVP, a champ, a superstar, surefire Hall of Famer. This guy's going to get a statue, and he gave me half an hour of his time just to shoot three-pointers with him. So I couldn't possibly imagine anything like that happening when I was working in the the, the dead end job at the bank ten years ago or, or longer now, where I just I, I turned up to work and I didn't know how I was going to fill my day. So if it wasn't for me initially taking those uh, risks and trying new things and doing different things, a situation like what happened with Steph just would never have occurred. Yeah, wow, it's it's crazy. It is crazy to think about, like from where you've come from to where you are. So on that note, Lee, what would be your advice to people? Like, you know, you, you mentioned that people ask you, you know, how they can get there. Is there something you can tell them? Is there any practical things? Because I, I think last time you talked about just being able to take on as many different tasks as, as possible to show that you've got yeah. the skills. Yeah, well, again, if you if you sort of come back to how I got my initial opportunity with the Basketball Jones, it wasn't because they needed someone as an on-air mm. analyst or personality. They needed someone who could work the camera and perhaps, perhaps edit and perhaps do anything else that was needed. And so my advice to anyone out there is if your long-term goal is to become an on-air person, understand that there are many steps you have to take along the way and to, it's never a direct path. And you might not get your opportunity by just waiting for someone else to move on from their position. So you have to find a way to be working in your field and in your industry that's going to sort of get you closer to what you're trying to do. And then you have to, you know, just sort of keep hoping and keep trying and keep showing people what you can do. But don't don't sit back thinking, well, I'm just going to wait for my opportunity. You, you really do have to go out there and try to create it for yourself and understand there's going to be plenty of knockbacks along the way. Plenty of no's, plenty of no, can't do this, can't do that. Because for all those opportunities that I've had speaking with guys like Steph Curry and Shaq and things like that, there's been plenty of other things where I've asked for that have just been told no. You, we, you just can't interview that guy. Like Kevin Durant, for example, uh, when he was in Oklahoma City and he was in Toronto and I asked their PR guy, I said, can I interview Kevin Durant? He said, no, he's done his media for the day. I mean, those are the th- sorts of things where you have to accept along the way. So... You know, learn as many skills as you can, try as many different things, and be very prepared as well to do things that you're not comfortable with. You, you mentioned it yourself there, Jono, where, you know, you, if someone says there's a story we need you to cover and it's in uh, Lawn Bowls and you don't know anything about Lawn Bowls, well, don't say, no, I don't know anything about Lawn Bowls. Say, I'll take that uh, opportunity to do that story. I'll try to learn about it as quickly as I can and as much as I can in that short time mm-hmm. and go out and try to make something happen because you might find from that you develop a skill or you learn a skill that you didn't even know you had. Uh, so that that's what's really important is to be as versatile as you can be, be uh, be accepting of, of any sort of opportunity that if someone's prepared to give you a chance to do something then then take it you know and be agreeable like yes I'll do that, I'll try that, I'll see what can happen. And if you come back and you know in my field of doing a feature and it come back and it's it's badly shot or it's a bad feature, or it's just not interesting, you learn from all those things. I remember I've come back a couple of times from shooting a feature where I didn't use the white balance on the camera properly, or the audio wasn't great on the mic, and you've got this feature, and it's like, well, you can't air that because it looks or sounds terrible. But those are very important learning moments for you that next time you go out, you realize, make sure the mic's right, test it out, make sure you got the white balance right, make sure there's enough uh, memory on the camera, make sure the batteries are charged. (laughs) All those important things that come about, you know, because failure for me is not about getting something wrong. 
you know, failure for me is failing to take an opportunity and, and failing to try. Uh, because there, there's been, you know, there's been plenty of days where I've come home from a show or from a shoot where I'm disappointed or I'm kicking myself over missing an opportunity to do something. But I've also remembered like, okay, well, next time I will hopefully not make that same mistake again. Hopefully I'll learn from it and hopefully you become better uh, because of it. So, you, you know, it's um, a lot of these sort of answers are sort of cliched in the sense that like you just got to keep on trying, keep on pushing. But, but perseverance and persistence are very important, but also getting into a situation where you don't know what the outcome is going to be. That, that I find is very significant for me because you turn up sometimes and you're like, I don't know how this is going to go. But I'm going to just try, and, and if something can come from it, great. And if I learn from that, then it, the experience is all worth it. No, that's good. Okay, Lee, the question I asked last week, you've had another week to think about it. If you could do anything <laughs> and know that you wouldn't fail, what would you do? Yeah, I, I, forgot, I forgot about that, actually. <laughs> so I technically haven't had a week to think about it, yeah. but um, I, I think I talked about uh, you know diving with sharks. Uh, skydiving you know, think, or something, yeah. Skydiving or, or, you know, like swimming, um, you know, snorkeling uh, with, with sharks. I think something like that would give you a real adrenaline rush because I don't think any of those situations they would take tourists out where there are danger that the sharks might turn on them. But at the same time, it's a shark, so you just never quite know, you know. Um, it, it, it's, it's one of those things that those sort of thrill-seeking moments. I always thought I was going to do a lot more of those than, I, than I've ever done as a kid as far as like I've never been skydiving. I've never been bungee jumping or anything like that. And I always thought I would probably do that at some point. But but again, life kind of, you know, when you're 20, you think, oh, I've got all the time in the world. <laughs> and then before you know it, you're 30. And then before you know it, you're 40 and you get married with two kids. And you're like, oh, hang on, I'm just a dad now. You know, <laughs> I'm, I'm no longer that 20-year-old kid who's just, uh, you know, no, no responsibilities and, and, and no obligations and no kids and no mortgage or anything like that. All of a sudden, you're like, you know, these two mm. two little terrors are running around the house and they expect you to have everything that they want for them on hand immediately. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's, a, that's an interesting uh, situation to be in. Yeah. It came up before, so I'm su- kind of surprised you didn't mention hitting 20 in the three-point shootout. Do you think maybe you can just do that anyway? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's something I believe I can do. Yeah, I think There's you no can do doubt it. I believe I can. You nearly yeah. got there last I mean, year, right? You got 19. Yeah, I got 19 yeah, last year, so yeah. And, and, and uh, it's one of those things that I think I think I will get there eventually. Uh, I mean, I'm going to keep on trying anyway. But, um, you know, that's one of those things I think like, man, I, I like – not not this year. I was actually bad at it this year. I only scored 14. But the last two years, I think this is right. I, I was 12. I had 12 points through two racks, the first two racks. So I only needed to score eight on the final yeah. three racks and I couldn't do it. And I'm like, that to me, that's where I'm just like, I cannot believe I couldn't get 20. <laughs> so, But the good thing is like by not getting 20 is like, uh, you know, I have to keep on trying yeah. because if I score, if I score twenty, then what do I do? Do I do it again the next year? It's like, oh, you've achieved that, so now you have to do something else. True, it gives the the fans something to to hope for, like me. Yeah, exactly. Is that's just when the camera's rolling though? Have you done this without the cameras going and and hit twenty? Uh, is it, well, is it too much of a production to get all those basketballs in the, in the racks. To- yeah, I mean that's the thing. Like I, I practice all the racks, but I, I haven't. I don't practice like the the one minute, um, you know, the one minute thing. But sure. Well, thanks so much for your time, Lee. It's been awesome to get the inside details of how it all came together. Uh, it's been great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me, John. I appreciate it, man. Thank you for listening, and thanks to Audio Technica. You can follow Lee on Twitter over at Lee Ellis. And you can check out his work at The Starters, which is going up on YouTube and podcast services six or seven times a week. Check that out, especially if you're an NBA fan throughout these NBA finals. If you want to help out the show, you can leave an iTunes review or you can pick up some merch over at 8bit.net slash P-I-W. That's A-T-E-B-I-T. There's a whole lot of NBA-themed stuff there as well. While you are there, don't forget we've got a lot of great podcast content in the 8-Bit Collective. You can follow me on Twitter at Jono himself. And until next week, keep putting in work.